poor. It's been a great study for me, and I appreciate you coming along for the ride, and I hope it's been a help to you. In Romans chapter 4 this morning, I call your attention to the text of this hour. Romans 4 and verse number 18. Romans 4, verse 18, Paul writes, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Verse 19, chapter 4 of Romans, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. To whom it shall be imputed if we, if we, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. This morning I speak to you on the simple but important subject of how would you rate your faith? This is a chapter about faith, and it is an important chapter about faith because it clears up, I believe, a lot of misconceptions about faith, and especially faith in Christ and what it produces. Sometimes when I'm asked to do a funeral service, I say to the people present, quote, All mankind are spiritual beings, they're living souls, in a living or living in a body of flesh. And then I go a step further to illustrate and I say, we receive letters of great importance in the mail. When we get the envelope, we open it up, we remove the letter, and then we discard the envelope. It's important to understand that the envelope was not the thing of real value. It simply was used to deliver the contents to its destination. I also add, this human body, and at that point I'm usually looking down at a casket, I say this human body is simply a sophisticated envelope that moves us through this life to our final destination, and with it, in the process, we're commanded to give and to glorify God. But since I've been studying Romans chapter 4, I've already gone back and put an attachment to those funeral sermons. I did it just last week. I'd have to add, from Romans chapter 4, I've come to understand something that I left out a very important point. And that would be the thing that gets that envelope to move through the mail system and that gets us to our final destination is the stamp. For the letter, that thing costs 37 cents at the moment, but don't hold your breath. It may be a dollar and a half by tomorrow. And it goes in the upper right hand corner of the envelope. But for us humans, the stamp is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father will look for to make sure that this body, as it were, carrying this soul and spirit to its final destination, it has to be sure that it is stamped with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Father's going to look for. He's not going to look for all the other things that we might think are important. Our faith is like that stamp on that letter. It will get us to our final destination. In this chapter of Romans, we have Paul the Apostle hammering away at the point that Abraham had that stamp. You remember back over in chapter 4 where he says, verse number 1, What shall we say then? Abraham our father in pertaining to the flesh hath found... There it is, as I mentioned to you before, Abraham discovered it. That's what the word found in verse number 1 of chapter 4 means. Abraham found it. He discovered it. But he not only quit there, but he also said that David had it. Verse number 6 is, as David also describeth it. You see, Abraham discovered it, but David described it. And the point made about that is that they had the stamp. They knew what the stamp was. They knew what it took to get from here to heaven. And they knew that that was the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has pointed out the stamp is faith in God. And in chapter 4, he has pointed out that it is not, it is not, religious ritual of circumcision. 
He pointed that out by saying that, that uh, Abraham was saved and had been imputed with righteousness before he was ever circumcised. So how could circumcision be the basis of his getting to heaven? Couldn't be. That's erroneous. It's absurd. But he also said Abraham was not saved because he kept the law. Reason. Because the law didn't come till 600 years later than Abraham. So there was no Mosaic law. There was no Ten Commandments given. There was no restrictions of what he was and was not to do. That came all later. The point made is Abraham was not saved by circumcision. Abraham was not saved by keeping the law. Abraham was saved by faith in God. And that gave, as it were, was imputed to him for righteousness when he believed God. The Bible clearly and often states, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. We sometimes understand believing God gets you saved, but we forget believing God carries you through the whole of your Christian life. Many Christian people profess, oh yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. What He did on the cross of Calvary atoned for my sin, and I'm confident that I'm going to heaven. And then they set out to act like they have to earn the rest of it. That's not salvation. When God saves a man through belief on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the fact of the matter is, it is faith that he is to live by all the way home. And when we walk into the gates of glory and he looks at us, trusting, I well done, thou good and faithful servant. Faithful servant. Faithfulness built on a life of faith. Not works because I'm afraid you're going to take what I had away, but rather knowing that you had saved me, therefore I committed my heart in love to you and for all the service I could render, I meant to do it and I did my best. My point is that it is here in this text today, Paul is pointing out that Abraham, and he had a great faith, was a, a faith that you need to lie down and place, place beside yours and then make a judgment. And it's this, how does your faith rate. How does it compare to the faith that Abraham had that God so often lifted up as being an appreciated faith, a faith that God honored and blessed and used in this good man? You see, in the passage before us today, you note two things. First off, look at verse number 19. He says, being not weak in faith. Is your faith weak? If you're a believer and you've trusted Christ as Savior, I ask you a simple, honest question. Do you have weak faith? But if that's not the case, look at verse number 20 where he says, He staggered not the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. In this context, there's really only two kinds of faith. Before we finish, you may find there's several more than that. But for the moment, there is either weak or strong. If you had to judge momentarily what kind of faith you have, what kind would it be? You see, it's interesting that you look at this passage of Scripture. There are some things in it that will teach us, if mine is weak, how I can what we call embolden it, strengthen it. And I think you can see that as we go along. Let's get to our text. Verse 18 then, he says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations? An important statement in verse number 18, and that's crazy, it sounds like to me who am not too smart anyway. And that is, Abraham had hope against hope. What in the world does, it mean? does that mean that there's a contradiction in the Bible? It may sound like a contradiction, but what he really means is that there was no human ground for any hope regarding the issue that he had been told about. That's what I mean. There was no human basis for Abraham to take encouragement that this will be worked out because I realize in my little old bitty peon mind, I can recognize how God's going to do this. No big deal. I can, I, can, I can come to that. I understand this. That's not what it was. Everything about what Abraham saw was absolutely saying, this ain't going to work. This is not going to work. This is not going to fly. This is not going to happen. The fact is that we have been often in a, a room where there had been a family waiting for some patient maybe a loved one or someone and a doctor would come out and the doctor would say to those people in my presence he'd say I just uh, needed to tell you there's absolutely nothing we can do there is absolutely no hope and, uh, and for what we can do the medical community have done all we can do and so our hands are off this case I've heard them say that but I've heard family members saying that's okay doctor our hope was not in you alone anyway we were looking beyond this and we're still looking beyond this and let me tell you something, that's a good position to be in. If you put all your eggs in that basket, then what you're doing is, as smart as those people are, there'll be one bridge they can't cross. There'll be one disease they can't cure. 
And there will be one attempt that they will fail at. I'm saying to you that your faith needs to be in the Lord, that he may use those folks for sure. But that's not where all my faith is. My faith is in the Lord. And my confidence is in Him and what He is able to do. I would say to you the difference in that kind of scenario and what Abraham is dealing with is a big one. The difference here is Abraham had God's word on it of what he should believe. Now listen. Listen to me. It says in verse number 18, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Look at the next phrase in your Bible. In chapter 4 verse 18, According to that which was spoken. My friend, that's where you anchor your faith. That's where faith anchors. Faith doesn't feel like he'll work it out. Faith doesn't say, I, I, you know, I can calculate how it could be done. That's not faith. Faith says, what did God say? God said, it'll be this way. Abraham said, then anchor my, my heart right there. That's where I'm settling down. That's where I'm driving my tent peg down right there. God said it in the discussion. I'm done with it. I'm, that's where we're going with it. I'm saying to you, that's exactly the point in this passage. And what's so exciting about that is if you understand the rest of the story, you'll appreciate that more. Let me give it to you in my version, but I believe it's biblical, okay? First off, remember that in the case of Abram, he started out with that shortened name. Abram, in your Hebrew dictionary definitions, it'll tell you that Abram meant father of many. Father of many. Now here you get the picture. Here's Abram. He comes along, and this is his early days, so he's called Abram. That's the name God gave him. Abram goes into this community, and he's sitting around with these other men of the community, the village, and they're talking. And one of them says, hey, I don't think I've met you. What's your name? He said, my name is Abram. And he said, and by the way, that means a father, that means father of many. And they said, oh, really? Man, that's neat. How many kids do you have? I don't have any kids. Excuse me? What'd you say your name was? Abram. What'd you say it meant? Father of many. And how many kids you say you had? None. Man, who named you? God. God named you that? Don't you think he's got a sense of humor? Isn't this a little crazy here? Father of many? How many kids? None. Isn't that going to be a little tough to explain the rest of your life, going around and talking to people and explaining to people? You see, I know what there is in a name. When I went to Alabama to pastor the uh, Trina Village Baptist Church, the man I followed, or the man who left before I got there, his name was Tom Sin, S-I-N-N. Boy, don't you think he took some shots being a pastor. Oh, this is Mr. Sin. This is who? Mr. Sin. He's the pastor of the church. Mr. Sin is the pastor of the church? Yeah, this is Mr. Sin. Tom Sin. Good man, went off to Bob Jones University, and I'm sure they changed his name. But anyway, the fact of the matter is, there's another point to be made here. This is important. I met with a young man who was from the city I'm from, where in Sparta, Tennessee, grew up. He owned a business. His name was Bobby Crook. Bobby Crook. Right over the door, it said, it said, right over the door, Bobby Crook. Ha ha. So he meant, if I take you, I warned you. That's what he's saying. And, and he was a nice fellow and whatever. But the point is, names are important. And boy, when God gives you a name, it's really important. And God said, this man's name is Abram. So here you have Abram, father of many, <laughs> father of none at the moment. But interestingly enough, now sometimes you miss this part of it if you don't put it all together. You see, I wonder, I just wonder, if Sarah didn't get tired of him coming home every day from his contact in the marketplace and saying, boy, I took a lot of razzing today. I mean, I was a brunt of every joke, I'm telling you. Those guys think that's the funniest thing in the world. My name is Abram, father of many, and I have no children. Sarah, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Now, I grant you, this is not recorded in the Scripture and may never have happened, but it could have. And I think it's important for you to see at least this point of the story for the sake of what Paul writes about. And he came home every day and said, Boy, I tell you, that's discouraging that, that, that you know, I have no children and they mock my name. They, they, I'm afraid they're going to start mocking God. I'm not so sure, but what Sarah said, Look, I have a solution. I feel for you. My heart aches for you, Abram. I see you come home like this. It discourages me and bothers me. I tell you what, let's do. And I believe that Sarah did what no thinking woman would do otherwise. And that is she gave her husband permission to have a child by her servant girl. 
And I don't believe it was an off-the-cuff thought. I think it was a, a thought that went through her mind to somehow shield her husband, whom she obviously loved very much, from all the mocking and the ridicule that he probably was going through with everybody he met. And so Ishmael is born. Abraham gets up and says, I have a son. I'll go down to the village. I'll walk through the streets. And they'll say, what's your name? I'll say, my name is Abram. What's that mean? Father of many. You have any children? Yes, I have a son. Oh, you have a son? Oh, man, that's great. you got offspring, and he'll get married, and he'll have children, and they'll have children. Oh, this is wonderful. This is, this is good. And then God shows up and messes the whole thing up again. Genesis chapter 17. Let me just show it to you. Genesis 17, verse 18. Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Sort of throwing down a token to God, you see. God shows up and has some things to say to him. And Abraham says, in essence, God has, uh, and God shows up, by the way, to remind Abraham that he made a commitment to him about a son. That's what God shows up to tell him. And Abram has this son, and he tells God, Lord, look, I have a son. Just work through him and save yourself a lot of trouble. Now, I can just hear God speaking, can't you? In fact, when I was in my study, I wrote down what I think he said. Abraham, Abraham, with me there is no such thing as trouble. With me, there is no such thing as a problem. Abraham, with me, there is no such thing even of difficulty. Abraham, I am God Almighty. And don't you ever forget that. By the way, he said that as, as much in chapter 17, verse 1, when he said that when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me, be thou perfect. He said that. But that's not all the story. The rest of the story is, you must not forget that Abram, father of many, back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 2, was told by God that he would become a great nation. Not just the father of many, that could be variable, but he said, that text says, he was to be the father of a great nation. That takes sons, and Abraham had none. So in Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, listen to what happened. God shows up and he says, Neither shall thy name be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. By the way, when God made that statement to him and changed it from Abram to Abraham, he still didn't have a son. Now, can you imagine? He goes down to the village and he's talking to the fellas and he says, Hey, God changed my name, fellas. And he says, Oh, good. It's about time, man. You crazy, man. You, you didn't have any children. Your name is Abram, father of many. Oh, you're nuts. What did he change it to? Abraham. Well, what does that mean? Father of many nations. Oh, my goodness. And the people just go nuts. They say, What do you mean he changed it to father of many nations? You didn't have any children and it was father of many. Why did he change it to this? And Abraham said he made a commitment a long time ago and he's going to keep it. Now, let me tell you something. That's what is important about Romans 4 and verse 18 when it says very clearly, Who against hope? believed in hope. I mean, here's a man who God had spoken to and said some things, and it was a matter that the public thought, mocked, made fun, acted as if God was crazy, and this man was crazy, and, and all the time, Abraham is hanging on to with all of his heart, and here it is, he hoped, and he believed against hope, because, listen to me carefully, even though he did not have a son, he had something better than a son. He had God's word on it. He had God's word on it. God had said it. And my friend, that settles it. And with Abraham, it did. There was no discussion. There was no debate. There was no trying to get away from that certain group of people who asked his name every time he went to the marketplace. I mean, Abraham was settled on this issue. And the issue was, it was, as verse 18 said, according to that which was spoken. And if you'd ask him, he says, well, well, why did he give you this name? I don't know. But I know one thing. I'm going to have my sons and I'm going to have many nations as my offspring. I know that. How do you know that? Because it's according to that which which he has spoken. Let me tell you something, and you listen to this carefully. 
This is the measure of your faith. Listen. The measure of your faith is the measure of your faith in God's Word. That's the measure of your faith. How far you'll go in believing God's Word, that's how faith, how strong, sturdy, weak or strong your faith is. What do you do and how do you handle the Word of God? Do you believe it? Or do you just believe it when you see it? Well, if I could see it, I'd believe it. No, 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 you won't get it. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing with God. He says, I have you my word, and if you'll take me at my word, then we'll go from there. Faith does not look at obstacles. Faith rather looks at God and his word. What did God say about this? And when God speaks, then we act. I remind you that uh, you are saved by grace through faith, and that was a gift of God. The very faith that it takes for you to be saved and me to be saved was God-given. God gave it, Ephesians 2 says. The interesting thing about that is, in that salvation that we're given, God gives of every man a measure of faith. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says it. It says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God gave it. God gives the measure of faith. Faith is, is simply God gives these Gives faith, and in what's interesting, you and I have to act upon it. Act upon it. Appropriate it. Faith is simply responding to what God says. This text is a classic concerning it. Look in the, your Bible in Romans 4. Look at verse number 13. For the promise. The promise. Look at verse number 14. For if they which are of the law err be, be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise. Look at verse number 16. Verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be of grace to the end, the promise. Look at verse number 20. He staggered not at the promise. You see, the Bible is full of promises. And what Abraham had received was a promise from God. And Abraham was hanging on to that thing like a pit bulldog on a limb. I mean, he was saying, God said it, I believe it, and that settles this thing. Interestingly enough, we tend to, to give excuses, you know, why we don't believe something. The Bible may say something, but we tend to backpedal on it, you know. We're just not sure about that. I've had people tell me, I'm not, when they're not saved and, and they're heard the plan, out, I'm not sure God saved me. Well, why wouldn't God save you? Well, I'm a pretty bad person. Well, the fact of the matter is, that's not a big deal with God. God knew that before you told him, you know. Tell him something new. He didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, God knew that. God was fully aware of how wicked and ungodly and paganistic we are. And you're saying you don't think God can handle that. Well, he created the world, you know, five, six days here. And you're telling me you can't do anything about your sin. You give me a break. You see, our ideals, we just don't believe God. You read the creation story. And if you ever had a doubt about what God could do, you're mentally ill or you're not thinking he who hangs the moon and the stars and the sun in space and you can come to God with something you call a problem and think God couldn't work it out if it's in His will? Oh, my friend, you believe it and I believe it. I'm confident of this fact that our Bible-believing churches are rather pale when it comes to our faith. We tend not to believe God can do what God can do. We tend to believe God can do what we have been accustomed to God doing. And I say to you that that's a sad thing because God wants to do, I believe, so much more to show himself strong, to show himself, as it were, to a lost and dying world that there is a God in heaven who hears and does move and act at will. The Bible says very carefully in Romans chapter 10, you know the passage well, that faith, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the word of God. I could say this to you, and I'm not being, meaning to be mean or unkind, but if you have small faith, it's probably because you have a little time spent in God's Word. Nobody's faith grows apart from reading God's holy, inspired, infallible Word. Nobody. 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 Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is not a fuzzy feeling you feel in a church service when they sing a song that stirs your spirit. Faith is not positive thinking that if you just have a good positive attitude, everything will work out just rosy. That's not faith. 
And faith is not simply this optimism that somehow comes about because people think that everything in the end is going to turn out okay. That's not faith. Faith is taking God at what He says and believing Him that He can do something about what He says. That God has never overspoken Himself. What do you mean? I mean God never committed Himself to something He couldn't carry out. That's what I mean. And in this story, that's the whole point. When you come to verse number 17, we read it last week and spoke about it. Abraham, when he comes to verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that it might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. How could he believe that? Because the God at verse number 17 describes. Remember? In verse number 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed. And then he describes God. He says, this God who quickeneth the dead... Makes alive. Makes alive the dead. You show me any religion in the world that can produce a person who is dead and then raise them from the dead and I will convert to their religion. Our religion already does it. The God that Abraham was serving and the God that Abraham had all this faith in raised dead people up. Quickened them. Enlivened them. Made a dead person walk. That's the kind of God this God is of Abraham. And it's not only that, but verse number 17 also says, He not only quickeneth the dead, but He calleth those things which be not as though they were. I mean, He can create something out of nothing. He not only did that with creation, He does it with every conversion of every sinner that has ever walked a aisle trusting Christ as Savior. He takes us from where we are when He finds us, which is almost nothing, and He sets us on a solid rock and changes us forever and works on us from the inside out with His Word to sanctify us into a likeness of Himself from glory to glory. Let me tell you something. Not a more exciting story on the face of the earth of the God we serve can do a healing, raising up, restoring of life, changing that person from one level to another level, and it just gets better. Those are something else, if you would. It says here, the strength of Abraham's faith is, is in God's ability. See verse number 19. Verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, that's God's word, so shall thy seed be. In verse 19 then says, and being not, Abraham was not, Weak in faith. And notice, if you would, what he did. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, and neither did he consider the fact that Sarah's womb was dead. In this context, what he is saying is very simple. He had three big problems. And he didn't look at any one of the three and start thinking, maybe I better give God an out. Maybe I better find another plan. Maybe I better help him. Maybe I better do something. Abraham never did that. He did not one time have any weakness about his faith, and yet he faced three major problems. One, his own body's reproductive processes were already dead, and he knew that. He was almost 100 years old. That's number two. And number three, he also realized the deadness of Sarah's womb. Her reproductive prospects were all gone. Here you have an impossible situation. And that's exactly what God wanted it to be. That's why God waited so long. He did not need Sarah's advice in getting a handmaid to produce a son called Ishmael. God didn't want that, nor did he need that. God waits until a person has run his course of trying everything he can and doing and trusting everything he will. And then when we've tied the last knot in the rope and we're hanging on for dear life, God said, have you had enough? I said, yes, then I will save you. That's where people get saved. People do not get saved as long as there's a few knots above the one you're hanging on to. You have to come to the end of yourself and realize in and of yourself there is no hope for you. And when you get to that last knot on that rope and you say there is no more knots to hang on to, God said, that's good. Now I'll save you. And that's about the last case with Abraham. There was no more knots to hang on to. There was no more life to be had. There was no more seed to be produced. There was no offspring to come. And God says to him, good, this is wonderful. Man, life. God just gets excited when things get really frightening to us. You notice that? I can see the Lord Jesus Christ walking across the Sea of Galilee. Peter's in the boat with the other disciples. And Peter says, if it be the Lord, you tell me to come to you. And he says, Peter, come on. And Peter climbs out of that boat and heads out on that water. I think Jesus Christ was excited. Here's a disciple who I said come. The very fact that I gave him my word gives him a basis on which to come. I invited him. I'm the son of God. He's trusting me. And he came. You know when Peter began to sink? 
Bible's pretty clear when he took his eyes off the Lord. When he began to think of something, whatever it was, I do not know. The Bible does not state, but in my humanist, I got this idea. He probably says, I'm pretty good. I am doing a good job. And it's me doing it. I want you to know that I am walking on this water. He either said that or thought that or for just a moment, just a moment, he may have thought of something totally, absolutely non-related to trusting the Lord Jesus. He thought of something. I know this because the Bible indicates as he began to sink, he said, Lord, save me. And our Lord was faithful to reach out his hand and raise up this sinking disciple but I believe in the process. I believe our Lord was happy about this disciple doing this, trying this, attempting this. I think it was an act of faith. Look at verse 20 quickly before we leave. Verse number 20, he said, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Amazing here, holding tightly to God's promise. Abraham did not stagger. He did not waver in unbelief. And we are so prone as it is when things are going well, it's rather easy to trust God. But when things go south or go sour, then we tend to waver. We tend to doubt. And sometimes we just flatly give up. A couple of things when in this word here, this business of staggering, I always get the idea of wa you know, waving and, and sort of moving from side to side. When I was a young kid on a farm in Tennessee, my father had a very small farm, but when we would plow the field from the front to the back, it seemed like a long way to me as a kid. And we had a, a small Ford tractor, and we would uh, put the plows down, and, and my dad would say, well, I'm going to go uh, do something else, maybe get the disc from the neighbor over here, and I'll be bringing it over. So you just plow, and, and I want you to get this you know, furrow down through there. Make sure your first furrow is good and straight, and then make all the others accordingly. I said, no big deal. I can handle that. And you know what would happen? You'd get in that thing, and you'd set your plow, and the first thing you do is you, my dad would tell pick a fence post out there and then just keep your eye on the fence post. Well, as a kid, you know, that sounded logical, and I'd start that way, but then I'd somehow wonder, is that thing really doing its job back here? And I'd look back at the plow, and as you would, it'd go right. Then you'd turn around and say, oh, well, this is the wrong fence post, and so you'd pull it back over here, and you'd be going down here, and you'd keep that fence post in mind, and boy, you'd just be concentrating in the minute. you say, I wonder if it's really doing what it should be doing, and you'd look back, and then you'd go the other direction. You'd get to the end of the row, and that thing would be done. My dad come back. My dad said, what in the world did you do to lay off that first furrow? I said, I just want to be sure it was right. He said, it would have been right if you'd have kept your attention on the post in front of you. That's a lot like the promises of God. Faith doesn't want you to try to figure out all that God will have to do to keep everything on board and everything right the way it is and you want it to be. What he does say, you keep your eyes on him. Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Problem is, we tend to get our eyes off of him. Interestingly enough, Abraham had those occasions. It's in your Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 15. Let me read you a small, short text before we finish this message. Genesis chapter 15, in verse number 1. Genesis 15, verse 1 says, After these things the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. You think he had to tell God that? <laughs> you think God didn't know that? And lo, one born in my own house is mine heir. What I want you to note here, and it's important, Abraham could not understand God's promise of becoming a many-nationed father. And the fact of the matter is, all he could see was that was there was only one possibility. That was in verse number 2. And he would tell you that the steward of his house, the servant of his house, Eliezer, was in line to receive all of his riches, his inheritance. And he would say, uh, Father, I have no children. And right now, as it stands, the, the, the son that's going to get everything I own is Eliezer. And Eliezer is from Damascus. A and he's going to get every single thing I own. 
Let me say something to you at this point, and it is an important point to me. And that is, understand that struggling faith, stumbling faith, is not doubt. Any more than temptation to sin is sin. And it's not. Temptation to sin is not sin. And struggling and stumbling faith is not doubt. And consequently, God's testing of our faith is intended to strengthen our faith. So whatever God brings into your life, He knows how strong or weak it is, and He knows how stumbling and struggling it is, and He wants to fortify it. And so God brings things into our life to do just that. He allows these things to strengthen us in our faith in Him, our confidence in Him. And the fact of the matter, everybody in this room can attest to the fact we've all walked through that valley. We've all gone through those circumstances when things have gone wrong. And boy, they've been a real test of our faith. Where's God at? What's God doing? What's going to happen? Where's this going to lead? Where's this going to end up? And what's going to happen in the end of all this mess? James chapter 1, verse number 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' testings or trials, temptations knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect or maturing work, that you may be mature and entire, wanting nothing. The ideal is that you may grow in this time period, that you may understand what life is all about, and you'll be better when you come out on the other side. But you have to understand, God's going to send some things in your life to test your faith. And He doesn't do it to trip you up and cause you to quit and go home. That's not the point. God brings it so your faith will be strengthened. He wants you to believe Him to the hilt. Now, this is important. When you come to the Old Testament, you see several mistakes and failures that Abraham made. One of them is recorded in chapter 17 when God gave him the promise and he laughed. He laughed. Sarah laughed. He laughed. He laughs in chapter 17 when he hears that promise again. Let me tell you something. It's an amazing thing, and don't you ever forget this. When you come to the New Testament, you won't find a single reference to any of his failures. I looked in my concordance. I looked again and again and again. I didn't find one allusion to any of his failings of his faith. I didn't find that thing about the laughing. I didn't find anything about his doubting. I never found anything about his struggling. When he comes to the New Testament, God seems to look at his life as a whole and says, This man's pattern was faith in me. And that's how I want him to be remembered. I don't want people talking about what he was over there because I wasn't done with him over there. I took him from there to here and by the time I got him here, I have nothing negatively speaking to say about him. He believed me. He believed me. He trusted me. And then let me tell you something. When, when you see that in a man or a woman's life, a person who knows the Lord and they really do uh, trust the Lord when the odds are against them, when they against hope, believe in hope, Here's what the results are. It's tabulated in verse number 20. Verse 20, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And that's the end point of your and my very existence as Christians to bring glory to God. That's the ultimate. Let me tell you something, my friend. You can erase all the other priorities off your list of things to do in your life, but this one, bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. I don't care what you accomplish in this life. If you ultimately do not bring glory to God, you have failed and you have failed miserably. And that's exactly the case. It has to be done in faith. Faith is the kind of thing when one believes God and trusts God and has this confidence in God, God is glorified. By the way, the greatest thing you can ever do to glorify God is simply believe Him. Just believe Him. Read His Word with confidence that what He said He meant and what He says He'll do, He'll do. But if you don't believe God, then you don't even get to base one. Romans chapter 1. Interesting passage that uh, we have covered a long time ago in chapter 1 of Romans. In verse number 21, here's what the passage says. It says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart 
was darkened. That's an interesting thing when you compare it to Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. Here you had over in Romans 1, a human race rejected God and would not give God glory. Here you have in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, Abraham staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, and he was strong in faith, and he gave glory to God. That's what's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be like the pagans of Romans 1, 21, who reject God, don't believe God, don't trust God. But we simply are to be like Abraham, who believed God and believed Him to the point that he never staggered and he never wavered. He kept his eyes on what God said. He kept his ears attuned to the fact, I have a promise. By the way, faith does not minimize problems. You do nobody any good when somebody is in a dire circumstance and you walk up to them and says, Oh, it's not as bad as you think it is. Believe me, my friend, it could probably be worse. So it's not going to help you. And by the way, it doesn't help God. God doesn't need our help to make it sound like it's less than it is. It's bad. It's really bad. Somebody's sick, almost dead. Don't go in there and say, Hey, it's no big deal. I mean, hey, it's, it. don't minimize the problem. Magnify God. I don't care how big this problem is or this sickness. I don't care how mean and ugly this disease is. Look who God is. Romans 4, 17. He quickeneth the dead and he calleth that into existence which never was before. The fact is, that's what you magnify. And that's exactly what Abraham did in this case. Abraham honored God as the one who could be depended on to keep his word, fulfill his promises, and that's in defiance of all probability that it would work. Now I ask you as we started, how do you rate your faith? Is it weak? Is it strong? Is it stumbling? Is it staggering? Have you gotten anything of late from God by faith? Let's begin at the beginning. What's your relationship to Jesus Christ? Is there a relationship? The Bible says that step one is faith that's given to believe. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. God provides it. What's your relationship to Jesus Christ? Oh, you don't have one. Then you can this morning understand two or three things. One, the Bible declares that you, I, we all were at one time a sinner. And Jesus Christ, Christ came and died on the cross for our sin, paid our whole sin debt, sin debt of the whole world. And all we do is by simple childlike faith, which he provides, believe him to accomplish what he said he did. He paid my sin debt. Trust Christ as your Savior. The second question is this. What's your relationship to God's Word? What's your relationship to God's Word? Or, excuse me, does there such a relationship even exist? If I ask you, did you read God's Word every single day this week, what would be your answer? And the question is, in reading it, do you read it with the ideal of obeying it? Or do you read it because some pastor is going to ask you on a Sunday morning, did you read God's Word this week? Did you read it because you need it? Did you read it because you expected to have to give an account for it? Or have you come to that point in your Christian life that there's a relationship with those words because they're the words of the Master? This is my Master speaking. I'll speak to you tonight on how to make a difference, and I'll talk to you about your employment in the Christian life. And is this my employer speaking to me? If it is, I want to hear what he's got to say. I want to know how he wants his job done. Third question, how's your prayer life? Let's begin at the beginning there. Do you pray over your meals? Do you have enough thankfulness of heart before you begin to partake of food that you eat on a daily basis, which he provides? Do you have it in you to simply stop for a moment and pause and Thank the God of heaven for his provision. Do you pray over your children? Do you pray first of all for their salvation? Do you pray that somebody somehow, somehow, some way out there will share with them the salvation message? Or pray for yourself to be able to do it in an appropriate biblical manner to share the gospel with your children so they'll come to faith in Christ? Do you pray for your own needs? Do you pray for the church's needs? The question is, what kind of prayer life do you have? Or do you have one? Is prayer as much a part of your life as eating is, as sleeping is, as church attendance is? Did you know it's a good case to be made that there's more importance on your prayer life than there would be you to come to church on Sunday morning? I believe from the Bible you could teach it more clearly. More important that you spend time in God's presence. The good news is if you do that privately, you'll be here publicly. 
because that's where we gather, the family of God, and we take encouragement from one another. Then there's a third or fourth question, that's this, how is your witness life? How's your witness? Does it reflect a life of faith? Do you witness by faith or do you witness by your ability to persuade? Do you witness because in your heart you know the truth can make a difference in the life of somebody else? Or do you witness because you're being mandated to do so you don't want to feel embarrassed when somebody asks you? Why do we do what we do? Is it a life of faith? And my final question, are you making a difference as a believer? Is your Christian life making a difference in your home? In your own life? What would you not do? Or what would you do, I guess, is a better way to put it, if um, if we're, were a matter that you were no longer saved, if you profess faith in Christ and when you leave the church today, somehow, miraculously, you lost your salvation. That is, it would no longer be yours. You could not be saved anymore. So you, you came in as a Christian, you leave, you're a lost person, and you're out in the world now, and you can do What would you do that you're not allowed to do today? Would you just, have you got embedded thoughts that you just carry out? Have you got some impending thinking that you carry out and, and some plans? You, let me tell you something. The thing about a life of faith is this. A life of faith is totally dependent upon what God says. What God says in His Word, He says for our good. This is written for your admonition, for your advancement, for your growth, for your maturity. The fact of the matter is, if there's all kind of things lying bedded in your heart, in your life, your soul, they need to be dealt with on the basis of what God has already said, even as you are a Christian. If there's things in your heart this morning that you know full well that you have not addressed, those need to be addressed this morning. A life of faith is a life that is resting as a foundation upon the Word of God. If the Word of God does not mean much to you, it implies God does not mean much to you because it's His Word through which He gives to you that thing by which you're to live. The just shall live by faith. Do you have it? How would you rate it? May God use His Word to speak to us. Our Father... We thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for the faith of Abraham. And we thank you for the truths that are laid bare in this text of Scripture. Father, we ask you today to help us in our reading of the Word, to digest your Word so fully and completely that our faith would grow and mature, and that we, like Abraham, would have a strong faith. Father, many of us in this room face some monumental challenges. And it will take your underdoing and your undertaking to work these things out, to remove these mountains, to level them to size. Father, sometimes you put those there to test our faith, to see if we believe you, that you, as you've declared in your word, would carry them out. So this morning I pray for anybody in this room who has a mountain before them of being a sinner, lost, alienated from the God of heaven. If that mountain looms before them, I pray that you'll show them that you've already dealt with that and sending your son to die on the cross. And you have said, Whosoever now shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It'll take an act of faith on our part, and you've provided the faith to believe that that can be a reality in our lives. So help that man, woman, boy, or girl to do that right here, right now. And Lord, for our relationship with your word, help us to be convicted of that. If it's not what it ought to be, then help us to leave here this morning with the determination of heart and reliance upon your spirit to spend some time in your word every single day, no exceptions and no excuses. We always find time to do what's important to us. Help this to be important to us. Grow us, mature us, change us from glory to glory. And Father, may we then impact the people around us in our prayer life, in our witnessing life. May we make a difference where we are. Bless now the truth of this message to each of our hearts, this preacher's included, and help us now to go from this place and help us to be a light in a dark place. Help us turn many to righteousness by our testimony before a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, and turn in your hymn book, if you need one, to 282. We sing the first verse of Just As I Am. If you're here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd invite you to come. Allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be born again. If you are born again and God's spoken to your heart about a matter, then uh, it's not important that I know, but it is important that you address it and deal with it and do so immediately. 
So as the invitation begins, may God give you grace and strength and confidence and obedience to do exactly what you should. I hope you will. Let's sing together. 282, verse number 1. As we sing, you obey the Lord. Just as I am without one plea, but that I blood. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your attention. We'll trust the Holy Spirit to take the message and drive it into every fiber of your heart, your life, change you from whatever position you're in to what you ought to be. But I remind you, He will need your cooperation. He does not act against your will. He works with it. And it's important for your will to comply to His. And may I encourage you to be pliable as you leave this morning. Let God address your need, work in your heart, and take you from glory to glory until one day we step inside of glory. Our Father in heaven, thank you so very much for your word and what a blessing it is to handle. But what a responsibility it is also. Help us, I pray, today as we go from this place to realize now we're more accountable than we were when we came. We've heard the Sunday school lessons, and now we've heard the worship service message from your word. And now, Father, we go out of here with a new accountability hanging over us. And certainly it's an encouraging accountability. It encourages us by virtue that when we obey your word and we comply with you and your will, we're the better for it. It's only when we run counter to it that we run amok. So this morning, I pray now, take this truth, work it in our hearts, our lives, and change us and change us into your image, I pray, that the world may take note that we have been with you. Guide us and direct us. Give safety to your people as they leave now and return us to the service tonight. Prepare our hearts for the message from your word again. Thank you for all present this morning, our members and our guests. Bless them all, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Amen.